In recovery, we have a saying, there's no hope in hell, which essentially means you you have to stop relying on hope and you have to start relying on action. And certainly you can't recover without serious action. But I do believe there's a place for hope, especially when it feels like you're in hell. And we know what it's written over the gates of hell, right? Abandon all hope ye who enter or something like that. My guest tonight is an author. And in his book, Dragons to Butterflies, he shares his story of his hell and his recovery. And Johnny Calloway's recovery comes through hope and spirituality and finding faith again. That's what I really admire about him. And I brought him on tonight to share the message with parents and therapists and families and teachers who are working with kids at risk because we need hope. Without hope, I don't know what we have. Today's podcast is called Rock Bottom to Butterflies. Here's Johnny Calloway. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather, and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from beyond risk. Thank you so much for being with us. In my intro to the podcast listeners, I was talking about the fact that you're an author, that you've had a pretty intense childhood, and I think intense is the wrong word for it. I think horrific is the word that I would choose to use as I read your Dragons to Butterflies. You talk very frankly about your past, and uh, what I was telling our listeners is that it's your hope that inspires me and really is the fire behind my friendship with you. When when you and I talk, I feel hopeful, and I feel a relief. And I feel supported by your level of hope and faith in recovery. And that's powerful. That's powerful for addicts in recovery. And that's powerful for families. And so that's why I invited you today, because I feel like as positive as I am as a person, the level of hope that I have, you know, it wanes at times. And today was one of those days, quite frankly, that it waned was I was working with a family who's touring the facility and wants their child to come in. And the child's not interested in recovery. And honestly, the child needs it badly. And the family's in a rock and a hard place because they can't make the child get healthy. The child thinks that there's nothing wrong and it's very, very wrong. It's a, it's a terrible situation. The whole family's a mess. And they felt hopeless and I felt hopeless to help them today. And I thought, what better way to, <laughs> to inspire hope than for people to hear a story like yours and to see where you've ended up and to experience you and get to live through your faith and hope for a moment. So Johnny, with that, I'd love for you to talk about your childhood. My childhood. Well, I'll just answer to my childhood was rough. It, it was rough. But even even as a child, Aaron, there was there was a part of me that always knew there was something else. I cannot explain this. I, I tried to say it in Dragons to Butterflies, but periodically in the darkest of times after my dad had just done one of his acts, beating on my grandmother, beating on my sister, Whatever he had done, and I would go to my closet, and I would hide in that dark closet. Periodically, I would hear this voice, and it would say, just hold on, Johnny. Just hold on. There's more for you. What did that voice sound like? I don't know like? where they came from. And what did it sound like? Where did you hear it? Was it in your gut, in your head, in your ears? Like, where, where did this voice come from? It was as much a feeling as it was a voice, but it 
was a voice, and it, it, but it, it, it had a softness in its tone that was foreign to me because everyone in my house screamed. Whisper was a foreign concept in my home. I've said forever that the way you won an argument in my home wasn't by being right, it was by being the loudest, the longest. And, but that voice, when I would be hiding in that closet, trembling, rocking myself, and crying, that voice was soft, and it was gentle, and it was kind. I would immediately, when I would hear it, I'd be like, yeah, right, yeah. Because I was being taught, as a kid growing up, I was being taught, intentionally taught, don't dream, don't have hope, because you're just going to end up disappointed and hurt. What was going on? You you talk about some yelling and some hitting. What was happening to you? Why, why was this yelling and hitting so so hard on you? Well, here's the odd thing. My dad never laid a hand on me. He beat my grandmother, who was trying to raise us. He beat my sister. He beat my stepmothers, but he never laid a hand on me. I found out later the reason for that was that when I was an infant, I had, they called them at the time convulsions. Now they're called seizures. And everybody was terrified for me to take a lick to my head. My sister tells the story. She says, if you fell, everybody in the room lunge to try to catch your head before it hit the floor. So my dad wouldn't hit me, and but he did the other things. I mean, my memories of the sexual abuse were they're vague. Most of my memories in my childhood is like remembering a movie I just watched the day or two ago. But the sexual stuff is vague, and it's almost like silhouettes. How old were you? And that started around the age of seven. And my dad used to make me sleep with him. And if I woke up and I was, we had a little bitty single bed that he and I slept in. If I woke up and I felt crowded and I went to lay on the couch, if he woke up, he would come get me and make me come back to bed. And it was because he was usually drunk, I would lay there in that bed terrified to move, afraid that I would wake him because I never knew what was going to happen if I woke him up. What happened to your mom? get up and get angry with my sister. You just couldn't tell. Still in his quiet as I could to keep from waking him up. Hey, Johnny, what what happened to your mom? My mom died when I was five. And prior to my mom's death, I was her shadow. I went everywhere with my mom. I did everything with my mom. I was the epitome of a mommy's boy. Everything that I can remember about my mom is about me trying to please her, trying to make her be proud of me. And because of her, the way she protected me, I didn't even know that my dad was doing all the other things that he was doing. I, I, I did. So when she passed, all of a sudden, I'm in this world that makes, I'm like, where, in the, where did this come from? Because I, I knew nothing of it until she was gone. But it had been happening all along. You just didn't know about it. She was protecting you from yeah. it? Yeah. I found out later, my sister told me after I started writing Dragons to Butterflies that she was five years old and this is the way she put it, these were her words, because they were like branded into my mind as soon as she said it. She said, I was five years old, Johnny, when our dad taught me about the darker side of life. <laughs> Even saying that now, I get choked up, because my sister still lives in that torment. She didn't get what I ended up with, and she still lives in that pain. I was blessed. I don't ever want to put the message across that I'm special because I'm not. I worked for my breaks. I'm the one that found the program. I'm the one that went looking for another way. But I learned something recently, if I could share this with the listener. I learned this on a podcast that I did with a guest of mine, Dr. Eric Gentry, about post-traumatic stress disorder. And 
He said when a child is traumatized, regardless of what kind of trauma it is, they are robbed of hope. And after that, they approach every situation from fear. And until they get a connection with another human being and they get connected, that's why 12-step programs can be so helpful is because you learn it's okay to open up and that everybody's not out to hurt you. And when he said that thing about being robbed of hope, it resonated all the way to the core of my being because after my mother died, I had no hope. I mean, everything was dark. It was, yeah. And I think that's a vital piece for a traumatized person. So let's talk about that. Hope back. Yeah, so let's talk about that because here you are, you know, five to seven years old. You have this experience with being traumatized by the loss of your mother. Your father is all of a sudden introducing you to this world that you didn't know existed before. You're watching your sister and your grandmother. And I read or you talk about, you know, uh, the hallway and walking down that mile long hallway, wondering, you know, is he mad? Is he drunk? Is he angry? Is, he, is Are the beatings happening? You're hiding in your closet and you have this voice and you're too young to know what it is. So how did this begin to manifest into your own illness and your own sickness? How did this trauma turn into your own addiction? And what happened to the voice during uh, this childhood? Did it did it continue to go? Did it go silent for a little while? Did you learn to ignore it? I basically learned to just ignore it. Hit the nail on the head with that one. I, I, it never left me, Aaron. That never left me. But I did learn to ignore it. And as far as how it first started manifesting in my life, all that fear and the fear turned into anger. First, it started for me with guilt after my mother's death. I, cause I went to see my mom, and I refused, and they stuck me in the hospital when I was five years old to see her just before she passed. And I hadn't seen her in several months, and she was sick. When she went to the hospital, she looked as healthy as anybody I know, but after she'd been in the hospital for several months, she looked horrible. She was gaunt. She was... She had this big blister on her lip, and she saw how traumatized I was being just by seeing her like that, and she asked them to take me out of the room, and then she asked for a goodbye kiss, and I said no, and I turned my back on her. And when I got home, my dad gave me a spanking for that, and then the next time I saw her, she was gone. And, and she actually, the next time I saw her, she was in a casket. I thought I killed her. Of course, that's what a five-year-old brain would think. Of course, that's what a traumatized brain would think. And you and I both know that guilt and shame are the twin pillars of addiction. Those those two things, and that can manifest at such an early age, feeling guilty about what we did or did not do. But how could you have known any better? And as logical as what I just said is, how could you possibly employ logic at that age while you're being traumatized? Right, and everybody else around me was being traumatized. Even later on, I found out about my dad's life. Everybody around me had been traumatized. Everybody around me had been robbed of hope. Everybody was trying to find their own means of survival. Everybody around me. So nobody really, looking back, nobody really even recognized what was happening with me. I got caught shoplifting the first time when I was six years old. So that was the first manifestation of my acting out. And then stealing became an addiction. I mean, I, I stole stuff I didn't need, I didn't want. I just, if I had the opportunity to take it, I just took it. Why do you call it an addiction? What What was it feeding? How was it feeling? What was, what was taking place with that? How was it helping with the trauma? How was it helping you deal with the trauma? What it was 
doing, Aaron, was it was helping me because my family, when we would go to the grocery stores, you could count on my dad or my granddad Wood was going to come out of there with something that wasn't theirs. And I think when I started stealing, it helped me to feel more like I was a part of a family that I really didn't feel like I was a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it was, okay, now I did. That's why in my book trailer for Dragons to Butterflies, it says that I had a reputation that I had to live up to. And it even says that in, in my book. I never wanted to live up to that reputation, but I, I felt like I had an obligation to my family to be that. Do you know, it's really interesting. My experience today with this family, when they were giving me the rundown, down and then when I met with the teenager one-on-one and getting his version of the rundown, you know, stealing is a big part and the drug use and he's drinking and he's threatening suicide and he's cutting on himself and all all this kind of stuff. And I sat with the family afterwards and they, they kept saying, he keeps making these bad choices and he needs to make better choices and his choices are all wrong. And I looked at them and I said, at what point are you going to recognize that these are not choices? Lizards don't make choices. Someone who's in fight, flight, freeze, faint, fornicate and feed, which are the survival attributes, the the attributes of survival, that's all your limbic system is built for. That's all your survival brain is built for. That is a life of a lizard. And you talk about having to live up to something and we're doing these negative things. We're using, we're stealing, we're drinking and people say, why can't you just stop? And what people don't understand is that when we do these things because of our trauma, because of our addiction, it is literally how we're surviving. And so to say, hey, you need to make better choices, the response at a very subconscious level is, how do I make better choice than surviving? Because if I stop what I'm doing, I'm a dead man. You ask a, a lifelong alcoholic to stop drinking, they'll die. You have to ask a heroin addict to suddenly stop shooting up, they'll die. There's a hundred different kinds of versions of that for all types of addictive behavior, stealing, gambling, pornography, you name it. And so we're literally asking addicts to give up survival behaviors. This is what we do because we think it keeps us alive. Or like you said, connected to family. Because without family, what do you have? You, you've got death. You can't be alone in the cave. You you're dead when you're on your own and family is our first experience of tribe and so if you're stealing to be a part of a family and then people are saying you need to stop what stop being part of a family well every time i try to commit suicide i wind up in the hospital and my family's out there crying telling me how much they love me and without a suicide attempt no one's telling me they love me no one's showing up for me so it makes sense that i'm gonna keep doing this so that's that's a really powerful piece it's we lose sight these aren't choices anymore and that's that's addiction when it's not a choice anymore when it's survival to deal because it's easier than dealing with the horror of childhood or the trauma we we're dealing with it's addiction. Well, the, the analogy that I use for addiction, at least for my addiction, is it's like there's this beast that lives within me that has this insatiable appetite, and you can't feed it enough. You just can't feed it enough. And the fear is, and it's not a conscious fear, but the fear is, if I don't feed this beast, it's going to eat me. And the only thing it has a, an appetite for is whatever your particular addiction is. You're describing a dragon, right? People start putting out sacrifices yeah. for the dragon so it doesn't take the cows or the princess or the crops or the gold. And so we'll set a little couple cows out and some gold out and some, and it, it's insatiable appetite. And it's, it's, something that like swoops into our lives and and takes and takes and takes well i'm going to make a segue here and that's why the butterfly means so much to me and the life of the butterfly means so much to me a caterpillar in its lifetime all it does is eat that's it 
it eats, that's it. And it will eat until it can't eat anymore, and then it hangs upside. Now, that is the active addict. It takes and takes and takes and takes and takes and gives nothing back until we can't take anymore. Now, to me, the equivalent of the caterpillar going into the cocoon, actually the chrysalis, is when the addict reaches out to someone to make a connection and to start saying, wow, really, is this what I'm doing? Is this what I want to do? That is when the transformation begins, is when we start asking the question. Because, see, the active addict never asks. It never thinks. I didn't think about, well, you know what, if I break into that house, I might end up in jail. I didn't think about that. I just broke in the house. And, but once I started asking, once I made a connection to another human being that was going through the same thing and found out, you know what, I can be better. I can be better. What was rock bottom for you? What was rock bottom for you? Before we get into hope, tell me about rock bottom. Tell me about Johnny's lowest point. Well, I've had about three of those, Aaron. But the one that got me me started on, I'm going to say, my walk back out of the woods, it was December 3rd, 1984. I was married. I had discovered the needle about a year and a half or two years prior to that. And I was, I was obsessed with that needle, man. I didn't care what was in it. I did not care what was in that needle. I was obsessed with that needle. And I think the thing about the needle that was the big thing for me is it's like I knew when I had that in my hand and I was pushing it into my arm, I knew that I had my very life in my fingertips. And that adrenaline is why it didn't matter what was in it. It was the fact that I had control. So on December 3rd, 1984, I, I had a, a bunch of cocaine, a half ounce, and I couldn't shoot it fast enough, man. I'd do a big shot, and I'd walk outside, and I'd look up at the sky, and I'd say, was that big enough? And then I wouldn't die, so I'd walk back in the house, I'd do another shot, and I'm like, man, what's it going to take? And I finally just ran out of dope. And when I laid down on the couch, I looked up at the ceiling, screwed out of my mind, and I said, please, just don't let me wake up. <laughs> and then three hours later, I came to, and I looked up at that ceiling, and I realized I hadn't died, and I looked up at that ceiling, and please, Lord, my friends, but this is... I looked at the ceiling to that same God I was praying to to not let me wake up, and I said, fuck you. I asked you to just do one simple thing and take the breath out of my body, and you can't even do that? I'm done. Well, I was married, and my wife had seen me the night before when she had found me at one of the places where I was doing the drugs, and the, when she found me, I had blood running out of both arms because I was using a, a veterinarian syringe because the others were gone. That's the only thing I could find that had a point on it like a finishing nail. But when I came to and I realized what was going on, I knew she was leaving. So I got to my house as fast as I could because I knew that if she left me, there was not going to be anything to hold me together. And I knew I would die. So I went back to the house, and yes, she had her bags packed at the door when I walked in, and I begged and I pleaded, please don't leave me. I said, I will get help. That was my first bottle. That was my first real bottle. And simultaneously, that's when my life began. That's really powerful. That What did Jim Morrison say? I've been down so goddamn long that it all looks up from here. And yeah. that is where those lowest points, the, the point where I realized that I had turned into my biological father and I had chose drugs over my own daughter, just like he had chosen alcohol over me. That's when it begins. And that's that's when life begins. And I, and I hear so many families. And the reason why I asked you is there's so many families say, do you have to go through rock bottom? Can't you, can't you just stop? You know, 
a big part of the hope for me and a big part of what has held me together and gotten me to where I am is Course in Miracles. And there's actually a section in the, there's three books of Course in Miracles, and the last book that was written is called The Teacher's Manual. And it talks about the ten characteristics of a teacher of God. And the first one is trust. And it talks about the development of trust. And what's amazing, Aaron, is in that section, what it talks about is we must go through a period of sorting out. And it seems as though things are being taken away. And that is finding a bottom. Because the result of finding that rock bottom that you're talking about is you start seeking for something else. You finally come to the conclusion, you know what? These drugs aren't going to make me okay anymore. They're not doing it. So you start seeking for something else. And then when you do, you start slowly building on that trust. And that trust just goes from there. It just depends on how far you want to go with it. So finding that bottom to me is vital. Because if you don't find that bottom, you're not going to start asking the necessary questions to bring you out of the dark. Tell me about your first 12-step meeting, the first time you walked into the rooms. (laughs) Well, that morning I told my wife, I said, I'll find help. I really didn't think there was help. I had been introduced to AA through my dad because these guys would come pick him up. And I asked my grandmother one day, I said, Oh, who are those guys? And what are they what are they doing? She said, Well, they're from AA. I said, Well, what's that? She said, That's the place where they go to quit drinking. And I said, It ain't working. <laughs> so that was my introduction to the twelve steps. But then when I went to my, I was telling my wife I looked for help, and I started calling around looking for help, and I felt pretty safe about that little play I was putting on because I knew they were going to want insurance or a job or money. I knew I didn't have either one of the three, so I felt pretty confident that I was going to just make a few phone calls. And I thought at the time my only problem was the cocaine. I didn't intend to give up pot or beer or anything else. I was just giving up the cocaine. So I called this place and this lady, she said, son, I don't have any place I can put you. She said, but there's some meetings you can go to. I said, oh, you don't have any meetings for a guy like me. She said, I got meetings for guys just like you. And my wife was sitting there beside me, so I couldn't fish my way out of that. So I said, okay, I'll go to your meetings. I walked in for my first 12-step meeting, December 3rd, 1984, and it was a big meeting, actually, and it divided off into non-smokers. Now, with all of my addictions, I've been addicted to everything, I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. And so it broke off into non-smokers, and it was me, my wife, because I took her with me. I wanted to impress her, and I felt like if she was going to be impressed, she needed to be present. So I took her with me. I went off into the non-smoking room, and she went with me, and it was she and I and seven other gentlemen, and uh I sat there and I listened to these guys talk about things I thought only I had done. Feelings that I thought only I had felt. And things that they thought that I thought only I had thought. And they talked about those things candidly and openly and they laughed. And I wanted it. You know, immediately. Johnny, you're, you're bringing up one of the most powerful points. I cannot lead one of our parents' weekends without addressing this and the parents flabbergasted about their experience of community and unity. That there's a, there's a there's a term in recovery called terminally unique. That <laughs> the, 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 the first time I walked into a meeting, they said it was a speakers' meeting, and I naturally assumed that they meant they wanted me to speak. <laughs> so when when they said, "Okay, we're going to hear from our speaker," I stood up to talk. 
dog. It was my first meeting. <laughs> and this biker who's sitting next to me grabbed me by the shirt and pulled me back down into my chair. And I turned on him like I was going to swing on this guy. He didn't flinch. And he said, sit the F down and shut the F up for once in your life. You just might actually learn something. And so I did because he was completely unafraid of me. And what you just said, it's exactly what happened. Someone else told my story. And I thought I was the only one with that story. And then when it was time for everybody to introduce themselves, I was in a room of me and I wasn't terminally unique. Being the only one with this issue suddenly wasn't going to kill me anymore because I wasn't the only one with the issue and they're all alive. And they were frank and they were candid and they laughed. And I don't know. I did the steps. And some people swear by the steps. I don't. I swear by the room. I swear by the people in that room who are putting their life on the line because they've got everything to lose. And for any parent, any teacher, any professional who is dealing with kids at risk, who has not been to an AA meeting or an Al-Anon meeting, go just to experience the fellowship of people who get it. They've heard your story. They've told your story. Their families have told your story. They get it. And you don't have to buy in. You don't have to swear. I love it, Johnny. They don't need your insurance. They don't need your money. And they don't. <laughs> right. they, they just right. want your butt in a chair. Right. And, and, you know, what happened to me at that first meeting, there was another part of that first meeting that I don't think I will ever forget. The first guy that shared had come to a meeting and gotten clean, and then he started back to church. And he was the first guy that shared. He, when he started sharing, he started quoting scripture, which is not a common thing in a 12-day meeting. No, it's not. And, but when he did that, the first thought I thought was, I've tried this. This ain't going to work. <laughs> I did this. And then... But then the next guy had gotten clean, and he was going—he was going through a divorce, and he was that F and B this, and that F and B that, and I can't believe this. And I mean, just cussing and carrying on, and nobody told him to shut up. Nobody told him to sit down. And my thought after he shared, and nobody told him to shut up, my thought was, I might be able to do this because I knew telling me not to cuss right away wasn't going to work. I knew telling me that I couldn't be looking at the pretty girls in that room wasn't going to work. But I knew that if I could just be there with no real rules, I would be okay. You talk so and, much. You, you talk so much. So much of your injury and childhood and wounding, you know, came from you know feeling like you have to be a part of the family. And then another one of your statements you mentioned, you know, the, the connection, the feeling of connection. Um, I want to take the room experience, which feels like family and it is connection. And I want to take that voice in your head. Is there a link for you? Are they connected? That voice in your head is a, as a five, six, seven, 12, 13, 14 year old. And the day you walked in that first room. Well, this is what happened for me when I walked out of that room. I had the overwhelming sensation that I was home. I was home. I had found a safe place for myself. And as far as connecting it to that voice, you know, you're the first person to ever ask me that, and I've never actually thought about it, but my, my thought as a result of the question would be, if it would have spoken to me at that moment, it would have said, well, here it begins. Here it begins. The more for you that I promised you your entire life, here it begins. I think that's what it would have said to me that night, Aaron, because there it began. And I turned around that night and started walking back out of the woods that I had ran into for all my life. How does writing help you? You've authored a few books. Taming the Dragon, Dragons to Butterflies, the Adult Coloring Book. How is this writing, how does this help you? Well, it's very cathartic, for one 
thing. It's, it's incredibly cathartic because whatever I write, I try to keep it real. Uh, and you read Dragons to Butterflies. I think you could say it's pretty real. It's pretty raw. It's very, it's very real and very raw. And it's, it's incredibly eye opening. And it's another one of those things you see, do, read, feel, experience where you go, Oh my God, I'm not the only one it happened to. It happened to Johnny, too. And now Johnny's my friend, and Johnny and I are connected. Johnny, I I was sexually assaulted as well. And the secret tormented me. And that secret being revealed, being able to talk to my parents about it, being able to talk to my friends about it. And now, very easily, I can talk to you about it. I can talk to strangers about it. And I can talk to the kids in the facility who are dealing with that secret. And and we, we even have, a, we even have a, a statement where we say, you want to kill the addiction, you got to kill the secret. And you're, you are only a sick as your secrets and your your rawness and your realness in dragons to butterflies that discomfort is familiar to everyone not just me because i'm a recovered addict and not just me because this happened to me and it happened to you but everybody's got a dragon everybody's got a transformation everybody's got a rock bottom and when we're a parent a therapist a teacher we forget we forget our own. And you have a way, these butterflies that you work with, this writing that you do, you have a way of soothing yourself. The first thing you said, it's cathartic, which means you're not writing the book for me first, you're writing it for you first. Oh, absolutely. You know, somebody, when I started writing Dragons, there was a, an author, a best-selling author, that told me I should write. And he said, but you should write your story, because Taming the Dragon, my first book, was very allegorical. So I really didn't tell my story in that. But I touched on it. I wasn't ready. I was not emotionally ready to tell my real story when I wrote the first book. But anyway, after writing a few chapters and sharing them with some friends, this one guy asked me, because he was, he was so, I'll say, aghast by what he was reading. He said, why in the hell are you even writing this? The truth is, at that moment, Aaron, I didn't know why I was writing. I didn't sit down at the computer and say, okay, God, show me how I can help. No, this guy said right, and I just started writing. Why? Because it was the next thing to do. It was just next. It wasn't the next right thing to do. It was just the next thing to do. But in writing, everything started making sense to me. I had to go right back to therapy. Your question was, how does the writing help me? Once I put it on paper, it's no longer just a thought. It, it becomes, for me, when I write, it becomes real. Not that it wasn't real before, but it just it, it solidifies it. It, it gives it it gives it more meaning. My real writing came from is one of my other rock bottoms that I talk about in chapters nineteen and twenty. When I was sixteen years clean and sober, living in a mental ward and then a homeless shelter with sixteen years without drugs or alcohol, I went to see this therapist and he said, "Buddy, you don't know who God is, and until you get God in your life, you're going to stay up and nuts." And then he made a suggestion to me that changed my life. Page 204 of your book was going to be my next question. And I want you to tell that story now because I've got it right here in front of me. And it starts, Dear Johnny. And it is the one, one of the most potent exercises, one of the most powerful things I've ever seen a man in recovery do. And I think it's a phenomenal exercise. I want everybody to do it. I had just picked up my 16-year sobriety medallion while living in a homeless shelter and I was seeing this therapist and I went in and I told him how long I'd been clean because I was doing everything I could to hold on to something to be proud of. I told him I had written the first book. I had taught Course in Miracles by simultaneously I'm crying my eyes out talking about suicide. <laughs> and when I was done and I'm sitting there a blithering idiot so to speak this guy looks at me 
And he says, man, you are not going to like what I got to say. And I had just enough mind left, Aaron, that I managed to say to him, and that probably means that I really need to hear it. He said, I don't care how many years you've got without drink or drug. He said, I don't care how many meetings you've been through, how many books you've written, how many Course in Miracles classes you've taught. You do not know who God is. And until you get God in this mix, you're going to stay up in nuts because you can't beat what you're up against by yourself. He says, I'm going to suggest that you go back to that homeless shelter and you sit down and you write yourself a letter to you from God. You know what, Aaron? I never even questioned that. On the way back to the homeless shelter, I stopped and got me a spiral-bound notebook. And I believe, you say you got it right there in front of you, I believe I can almost quote that letter to you. It said, Dear Johnny, I'm writing you because you seem to have forgotten a few things. You've forgotten that I love you, that I always have and I always will, and that I only want the best for you. You have confused me with a God that would punish you, and you have therefore punished yourself. Please stop. You have special gifts that you can help me, and in this part I get a little vague on that you can help me with my other suffering children, but first you have to let me help you. You have learned enough from pain and agony, and it's time for you to learn from joy and bliss, but first you must learn to love you, love God. You say in this letter, you say, you don't have to suffer anymore. Yes. And yes. I want to make space in my, my own experience at the worst moment in my life, in my most hopeless, desperate moment, was a moment of love of divine love, of self-love, of a stranger's love, and of a father's love. And and what I want to make sure that every listener understands is I'm not looking to define, and I don't think Johnny is either, because Johnny and I have very different belief systems, but neither of us are looking to define God or higher power or universe or grandfather or Odin or Allah or Buddha. That, 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 that part doesn't matter. What matters is something more powerful than you does not want you to suffer anymore. And that's worth something. And now I'm not talking just to the addict. I'm talking to the family of an addict. And that's where hope comes from. The idea that this is as good as it gets is the core belief in suicidality and suicidal ideation. That's not reality. That might be your reality in that moment. But you don't have to suffer anymore. And folks, the reason why I wanted you to hear Johnny's message and Johnny's words and why I want you to read Johnny's books is because, Johnny, you continuously find your way back to hope. I watch you and you and I talk frequently. We've go, we go through hard times. You've gone through a very hard time recently. You and I are both very, very sensitive people. I had a hard day. I had a rough morning trying to eat in the little things. I, I want to go to the gym. I want to wake up and I'm tired and I go to the gym because my gym buddy is going to be there and I'm sore and my back hurts and my back surgery is not doing well. But this is back day. I got to do back exercises. And so you find that one thing, that voice that says, you're worth it. And I'm not just talking to the addict. I'm talking to the parent, and I'm talking to the therapist, and I'm talking to the teacher who's looking at this teenager, this adolescent, who's throwing it all away and say, you can do this work and you don't have to suffer. You can be this parent and you don't have to suffer. That you have your own path of healing to walk. Your Connection to butterflies, Johnny, not just your metaphorical one, but your operational one, your actual connection with butterflies, your self-soothing, your writing. The voice in your head has become a voice from your heart. 
to so many people. And in our brief meeting, the first time we met, I was so deeply touched by not what you said, but who you were, that you were just love. You just wanted to love. You wanted to connect. And that's all I want. And I I think that's what so many people who struggle with addiction and trauma want is they just want to connect again. They may not say they do. They may not act like they do. And they may do the opposite to try to prove to you that you're wrong when you tell them that that's all they want. But it's all they want. And that's hope you can hold on to. And I'm an avid Course in Miracles student. And it really is big on forgiveness. And But the thing is about forgiveness is identifying with my sameness and whoever it is that I'm holding a resentment with. And for years in my process of trying to learn about that, uh, I would focus on whatever it was they had done that upset me and how did I do that same thing. I don't think that's the sameness that I need to be focused on anymore. There is a part of every human being, I don't care whether you know it or not, I'm going to say this, that wants to be loved. I don't care how angry you are, I don't care. As a matter of fact, the more angry you are, probably the more you want it. (laughs) We all have that. And we also want to be able to love someone else. And I'm not talking about that girl down the street. I'm talking about people. It does, it's not a sex thing. It's about loving someone. I came to the conclusion with my dad. There's a, there's a line in Course in Miracles where it says every interaction between two people is either an expression of love or a call for love. And when I really wrap my heart around that, what I realized about my dad, everything he ever did was about screaming, somebody, please love me. And the catch is, when you come from a traumatized place, you're screaming for somebody to love you, but simultaneously you're terrified of it because you don't trust it. That's right. So learning to take baby steps. I remember with my first 12-step sponsor, learning that it was okay for me to trust him. That I could tell him things that I've said that I would never tell anyone. And then to watch him handle that with kid gloves and to honor my need for confidentiality. I no longer need that, of course. You can see it. I mean, I am literally an open book. (laughs) But at, at that time, I needed to know that my story was safe and he protected it. And he opened the door for me to love another man. He is my business partner today, same guy from 34 years ago. He's my business partner today, and we have breakfast together every morning. I don't have a family member that I am closer to than I am him. But we have that connection. That connection is so vital, Aaron, is learning and being opening myself up, being someone who lived in a very unsafe world and saying, I'm going to trust this guy. And the scary part is I say that. It's okay, maybe the first time you try to touch somebody, you get burned. It's going to blow up in your face. Of course it is. But you got to keep trying. There's a message in my book. If I was going to sum up, not just my book, if there's a message in my life that I want to get across to people, is don't ever give up. Don't stop trying. Love is out there for all of us. We just got to keep turning over rocks. Johnny, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring this around home. We're we're coming up to our 50 minutes, and I want to do that by doing a couple things. Number one, Johnny, I want you to tell people how they can get in touch with you, connect with you, and share in your hope and your faith in your journey. The easiest way to get with me now is johnnycalloway.com. Great. That, that is my website. It's J O H N N I E Calloway C A L L O W A Y dot com. You can find all my podcasts on there. You can find out everything I'm doing. The next thing I'm doing that I'm really excited about is I'm going to have online course in miracles classes. I am so excited about that. That's fantastic. And so that's where my heart lives. That's where, and, and when I get on fire about a course in miracles, 
I am alive. And to be able to do that online where it can be available to so many people, it's like, okay, now I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Now I'm doing what makes life worth living. So that answer is that johnnycalloway.com will take you to everything I do. Folks, I want you also to uh, grab his book, Dragons to Butterflies, The Metamorphosis of a Man. It is on Amazon. I just happen to have a signed copy myself. Um, and, and I want to, I want to walk out of this podcast with an opposing thought to we walked in because before Johnny and I got on the phone, I said, we have a saying in recovery that there's no hope in hell. And that's what it says over the gates of hell is abandon all hope. And addiction is hell. It's insanity. And it, it makes no sense. And the reason why I wanted Johnny, the reason why I wanted you to talk to our families and our therapists and our teachers is because you have proven that statement wrong. Yes, folks, and, and I'm, I'm reiterating some of the things that Johnny says. Yes, folks, you do have to go through a rock bottom. If for no other reason, it's because then you're offered a choice. This is about connection. This is about home. And it doesn't matter how badly they're suffering and how far they've pushed you away. They want connection. You got to get into these rooms, folks. A-A-N-A-C-O-D-A, Al-Anon. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter whether you're a user or not. Go sit in the chairs, go listen to the stories, and go tell your own, and you realize that you are not alone. Get it out. Journal. Write a book like Johnny. Get it out. It's cathartic, and it's raw, and it's real, and you get that secret out on paper, and suddenly it's not running your life. You got to forgive and trust, and it's easy to say, but there's a reason why that's lower on the list, is because it's not the first thing you do. But you don't get that freedom without it. That forgiveness and that trust, you don't get freedom without those two things. And then the last thing he said for my Moms and dads and teachers and therapists don't give up. These kids need us. Where these kids, these teens, they need help. They need to know. And you can get out of the way, but don't go away. You can get away, but don't go away. Never give up on these kids. Johnny, I love you so much, man. You're so loved, lovable, and loving by the people who follow your podcast. Morph into a new you, and by me, uh, Johnny. Thank you so much for for being my guest. I know this is not our last time talking. It's just the first time you've been here with me on a on my podcast so thank you thank you thank you my friend thanks for having me Aaron I love you buddy I love you back man All right, folks uh, thank you so much remember take care of yourself first take care of your adult relationship second and take care of the children third because if we do it in that order we're in the best place to take care of these kids this is Aaron Huey saying thank you for joining us on Beyond Risk and Back Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.